Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. My name is Trey Grayson. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics. Tonight, we're going to talk about two things we should never talk about in polite company. Since you all don't look very polite, it's okay. We're going to go forward. Religion and politics. My mom said never to do that, uh, have that conversation with, in, with folks. So we're going to talk about it, uh, its impact in this election, as well as beyond. And we've got an amazing panel uh, led by our moderator, our IOP fellow, who's in his last week here with us, John Carr. Uh, who's been a great fellow for the semester. Uh, and before I introduce John, I want to thank several of his liaisons are in the audience. And uh, with the end of the semester and the weather and everything else, uh, worked really hard to, to build a crop for tonight. So I want to give a shout out to, the, to John Carr as the liaisons. Thanks for all your effort. So please join me in welcoming IOP fellow John Carr for tonight's conversation. John, please. Hi, Trey. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I know this is a very busy time for students. I want to thank Trey, I want to thank Kathy, and I especially want to thank our liaisons for helping to put this together. I had never been a fellow before and didn't know quite how to be a fellow, but it turns out it involves a lot of talking and a lot of eating. And I'm really good at talking and eating, so this has been a wonderful uh, fall for me. And to have it end with this uh, forum is really, uh, I think, uh, special for me in that I think politics is enriched, not diminished, when we bring our deepest convictions. Religion and politics can come together in a way that explodes, or it can come together in a way that enriches public life. So we're going to have an interesting evening on an interesting topic that, as Trey suggested, lots of people danced around at Thanksgiving. You know, you, after a couple glasses of wine, there are two things you don't want to go near. Uh, religion and politics, but we're going to talk about it. I think we're going to add some wisdom and some insight and uh, some perspective on what happened, but more importantly, what this may mean in the future. The discomfort that Trey talked about goes back a long time. It goes back to the founders. It, frankly, our history is a mix of tolerance and prejudice and progress. Uh, we're in the John F. Kennedy Forum. We know something about that. And it's, so it's as old as the Constitution, and it's as new as the election of a month ago. And let us begin with two pieces of video that talk a little bit about uh, how tender this topic can be. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president should he be Catholic, how to act. And no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. When no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and when no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic Protestant, nor Jewish, when no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, when no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew, or a Quaker, or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers, for example, that led to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. Today I may be the victim but tomorrow it may be you. Until the whole fabric of our harmonious society is ripped apart at a time of great national peril. And to anyone who says that church is no place to talk about these issues, you, you tell them there is no place better. No place better. Be because ultimately, these are not just political issues. They are moral issues. 
So, two voices, uh, both familiar to us, with overlapping but very distinct uh, positions. One defending the right of a minority religion uh, to participate in public life, and the other talking about the urgency of discussing moral issues and therefore political issues in church. Uh, we had a study group this last semester on religion and politics, and we had a lot to work with. The first Mormon nominee for president, two very different uh, Catholic candidates for vice president, a president who is a Christian, but a good part of the country isn't so sure that he is a Christian. But there was a lot going on, and there was a lot of speculation of what the outcome would be. And as we begin, I would like if you could throw up that first slide to just look at a very superficial level at the exit polls of what they said and what they uh, uh, did not. Uh, the one thing we learned is that uh, religious behaviors are not driven only by religion. They are driven by religiosity, how active one is in one's church, by race and ethnicity, uh, African-American uh, churchgoers behave differently than uh, white churchgoers, than, and that's different than Hispanic. And regionally, uh, Protestants in New England probably uh, sees things differently than a Protestant in Alabama. But as you look at the data, several things are clear. Mitt Romney did much better among people who attend church more often. Uh, President Obama... Uh, among those who went occasionally or never, lots of talk about the nuns. Uh, the uh, Catholic vote, which uh, EJ will probably remind us, is a good predictor of who wins the election, but how it gets there is enormously complicated. Once again, mirrored the national results, uh, with great differences, frankly, between regular churchgoers, Hispanic Catholics, and white Catholics. Uh, evangelicals, a lot of discussion about how they respond to a Mormon. Uh, overwhelmingly, four out of five supported Governor Romney. I think the most interesting statistic in the whole election was that evangelicals supported Governor Romney at a higher rate, according to the exit polls, than Mormons did, uh, which I don't think uh, we could have anticipated. But the, uh, the people on this panel and others they treat the exit polls like scripture scholars treat the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they'll be going through these over and over again, and I'm sure our panelists will uh, take a moment to, uh, to take us more deeply. What I would like to uh, close with is that we have a very diverse country, very diverse religious views, and we have a very diverse panel. We have a Catholic and evangelical in the mainstream, we have a Democrat, a Republican, and a journalist who probably doesn't identify. We have a proud liberal, a proud conservative, and somebody who probably doesn't confide where she is. We have somebody who's a think tank, analyst and advocate, a reporter and editor, and a commentator and columnist. So we're gonna have a lot to say, and let us begin with a really simple question, which is really three questions. What happened in this election uh, in terms of religion and politics? What did not happen? And thirdly, what are the implications of this for the future? So let's begin with what happened, and let's begin with E.J. Dion. E.J., as you've heard, as you see in your materials, is a columnist for the Washington Post. He is a Brookings Fellow. He is the author of a series of books. My favorite is Sold Out. It's not spelled the way you think it is and his new book, Our Divided Political Heart. He teaches at Georgetown. EJ and I have had a continuing discussion. Which is the most dysfunctional institution? <laughs> American politics, American journalism, or the Roman Catholic Church? <laughs> and uh, it goes back and forth, but I'm really <laughs> glad that EJ is here. And what happened in this election? First of all, I want to say how great it is to be here at the Institute of Politics and how great it is to be here with my friend John Carr, who for a whole lifetime has been one of the most powerful advocates of social justice in our country, but also he's someone who served the Catholic Church for many years, but is delightfully irreverent. Uh, and some of you may remember that the Catholic Church decided that limbo didn't exist, you know, that place where the un 
baptized souls went, and John went to a bishop he worked for, and he said, you know, I don't really care about limbo, but never get rid of purgatory, because working for you guys has been my purgatory. <laughs> and I was thinking about that coming here, because after John finally retired from the bishops, he went to the Institute of Politics, and we all know that when you leave purgatory, you go to heaven. So that the Institute of Politics is clearly a, a piece of heaven uh, somehow. And I do want to pay tribute to Trey uh, Grayson and Kathy McLaughlin and Heather Gain and all the good people here. I've loved this place for longer than I care to admit. Um, a couple of things. In many ways, religion was the dog that was supposed to bark in this election and actually didn't. Um, first, as John mentioned, uh, Mitt Romney's Mormonism was supposed to be a major factor in this election. Well, it probably was a factor to some degree uh, in the Republican primaries. Mitt Romney, during the contested part of the uh, campaign, never won a primary where a uh, majority of the primary votes were cast by white evangelicals. Um, but it is very hard to find any evidence uh, that Mitt Romney's Mormonism affected the election, and in particular, uh, that it hurt him, which is a, a major, I think, a major uh, victory. If you look at um, white evangelical voters, a group where it was supposed to hurt him, uh, Mitt Romney ran six points better than John McCain did uh, uh, four years ago. According to the exit polls, I I'm waiting to look when all of the votes are counted to look at the precinct level, but according to the exit polls, Again, evangelical voters were supposed to have a, um, an aversion to a Mormon. Their share of the electorate stayed the same uh, from this election to, to the last. Now, some of this could have more to do with the fact that many of these voters are very conservative and, on balance, were willing to vote for a Mormon over President Obama, given how they felt about him. But it is still significant that we did not see anti-Mormon prejudice in selection. Um, second, it is worth mentioning that this is the first election in American history in which there was not a white Protestant on either of the party tickets, uh, which is amazing because through most of our history, white Protestants were the only people uh, on uh, party tickets, and, and we actually had only one Protestant on the ballot, and that was President, uh, <coughs> President Obama. Um, the, we also thought that perhaps uh, the Catholic Church referred to it as issues of religious liberty, there were many uh, religious uh, conservative voters who said that uh, President Obama was hostile to religion, hostile to the interests of uh, churches. And I tried to take apart the exit polls to see how much switching could there have been on these questions. Uh, and I found very limited evidence of it. Um, the, John is right, the Catholics voted narrowly <clears throat> for Obama, 50 to 48, which is roughly matched his national vote. Um, the, um, uh, Catholics uh, clearly always vote for the winner because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, though, uh, in That's a given. Yeah, um, though in fact it's, uh, it's more likely, and these results show it, that the Catholic Church is uh, one of the most diverse faiths uh, in the country. It kind of actually reflects uh, the, um, um, it's, it's a religion in some ways that looks like America because of the very large Latino part of the Catholic Church and also a significant African American. Uh, part of the Catholic Church. Um, but there was, as John mentioned, a sharp difference uh, between white and Latino Catholics. White Catholics voted 59 to 40 for Romney. Latino Catholics voted 75 to 21 uh, for President Obama. But was there a big shift among Catholics? Well, if I, among white Catholics, which people talk about, there was a shift among Latino Catholics toward the president. Um, or the, if you look at all white voters, uh, President Obama's vote was four points uh, lower than it was uh, four years ago. Among uh, white evangelical voters, it was six points lower. Among white Catholics, it was seven points lower. Among Jews, it was nine points lower. Now, it was, they were starting from a very high Democratic base, so Obama still carried the Jewish vote 69 to 30. Um, it strikes me that if there was a shift among uh, Catholics, it's not the full seven points you're talking about. At most, you're probably talking about that difference of uh, three points. So it was not um, an enormous shift. I just want to share two other numbers and one other thought. Um, I work with some folks at the, um, um, the uh, Public Religion Research Institute. We did pre and post election uh, surveys. 
Um, and I think that what you saw in the coalitions that the two sides assembled were two very different Americas, if you will. Eight in 10 of Mitt Romney's voters uh, were white Christians. Only 35% of Barack Obama's voters uh, were white Christians. These are two very different constituencies. And I think we're looking at some real change in the United States over time on the religious front. Um, if you look at the uh, 18 to 29 uh, generation, 35% uh, of those voters are religiously unaffiliated. It doesn't mean they don't believe in God. Many of them do, but they just are unchurched. They are the nuns that John talked about, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. Um, so 35% of the 18 to 29s, only 8% of Americans uh, over the 65 and over are religiously uh, unaffiliated. Um, and, and you go right through the numbers. 12% of the under 30s are white evangelicals, 28% of the over 65. So there is something changing in the country. Um, third interesting thing that we discovered, or a, a, another interesting thing, is people tend to go to religious congregations that vote the way they do, or at least they think vote the way uh, they do. But that seemed truer of the Romney constituency than the Obama constituency. 74% um, of Romney voters said they attended congregations that mostly supported Romney. Only 61% of Obama voters uh, went to congregations that they said uh, mostly supported uh, Obama. Um, it's perhaps why uh, Romney supporters had trouble uh, with the polls at the end because no one they hung around with in church uh, was voting the other way, so they couldn't imagine uh, how he could lose. Uh, last point I want to make uh, uh, so we can uh, move forward. This religion in some direct way um, did, not, uh, uh, did not behave in this election in any way that was radically different from earlier elections, and I don't think it was a decisive factor uh, in the election. But that does not mean um, that values, including values connected to religious convictions, uh, didn't matter. In many ways, we had a different kind of culture war debate. Uh, this time, the culture debate was about economics. Uh, economics became a kind of cultural uh, issue. I think that was particularly visible in the discussion around uh, Mitt Romney's 47% comments, uh, in, around the discussion about makers and takers, and in, the, in our whole attitude of um, what we, uh, what we our, our very sort of divided attitudes in the country uh, in what we look to government to do, uh, how we see the economy working. Uh, economics uh, are uh, about uh, gain and loss, about whether you have a job or not, um, but they also are very much a moral question, and I hope that is one of the things we're going to discuss tonight. Thank you, E.J. Uh, Kim Lawton is a producer, managing editor, uh, a reporter, uh, Girl Friday, I mean, <laughs> runs the place at the Religion and Ethics Newsweekly. Uh, you think you have a hard job. Imagine trying to report on religion on television in a serious way. And Kim does it in a remarkable way. I think the most impressive show that deals with these topics. Uh, she's been all over the world. Uh, she has uh, won awards for her reporting in an area dominated by prejudice and by manipulation and partisanship, she is a sane voice and a thoughtful voice on what religion and politics do together. EJ sort of combined what did happen and what didn't. Why don't you do the same? Well, and it's always tricky following EJ in any kind of a discussion. So um, thank you all for, for being here and for inviting me to be here. I don't know how sane I am after this election. I didn't feel too sane about November 1st, but um, slowly recovering. I think religion did play a very significant role this time around, but a lot of it wasn't in prime time, much as my show and I tried to cover that. A lot of what happened happened sort of under the radar. Um, it wasn't necessarily front and center, but very much involved. I'll just go through a couple of the things I found interesting this time around, and then we can talk, unpack it a little more. I was very interested in watching evangelicals, as we noted. Uh, there was a lot of questions about whether evangelicals would vote for a Mormon. Of course, there are very significant theological differences, and many evangelicals think that Mormons are not 
real Christians. That, that offends many Mormons, but that is a very widespread evangelical thought that their, their views are not truly Christian views. Um, a lot of it did end up being an anti-Obama vote, and I think that's what it came down to. I still think it was. Everybody said, oh, it didn't make a difference. I think it did. I think the numbers would have been even higher for the Republican candidate had that candidate not been a Mormon. I interviewed many people who said, I am just not going to do it. I'm not going to vote for a Mormon. So I think it did make a difference, but, but not significantly, as, as EJ pointed out, about 80% of evangelicals ended up voting for Romney. That's one of the highest levels of Republican support for evangelicals, white evangelicals, who make up about, right now, about a quarter of the electorate. So that's a significant number of votes. And any Republican candidate has to get a lot of those votes in order to win. One thing that happened this time around was um, there was a really strong mobilization at the grassroots of getting evangelicals out to the polls. Now, many of you, myself included, may have thought, well, evangelicals are all so political, they're so politically active. Well, a lot of the evangelical activists and leaders felt that evangelicals did not vote enough in the 2008 election, and so there was a huge voter mobilization campaign. Ralph Reed, the former uh, head of the Christian Coalition, has now founded a new group called the Faith and Freedom Coalition. His organization had a massive effort, and they reached out and contacted, they claim, over 120,000, no, 120 million, 120 million voter contacts, many of them in swing states, saying, get out and vote, you've got to vote, you've got to vote your values, you've got to vote for the family, you've got to vote for God. And in fact, there was a, a big evangelical turnout. Here's what's interesting. It didn't put Romney over the top. And that shows what EJ mentioned, the demographic changes in this country. There was a time when that kind of an evangelical turnout would have been enough to tip the scales to the Republican Party. It wasn't enough this time around. And in fact, I talked with Ralph Reed the day after the election, and he said, of course, he was a little worried they were going to put the blame on him. He said, we did our job. The party didn't do its job. And he said, we have to do a better job, meaning Republicans, but also religious conservatives. He said, we have to do a better job of not looking like your daddy's religious right. And I think that's key to one of the future questions we'll get back to. I was also really interested in looking at Catholics. Um, Catholic community, very divided, as we've mentioned. Uh, you have very distinct groups within Catholic voters. You've got the very conservative political uh, Catholics who tend to vote on issues of abortion, gay rights, and now in this election, all of a sudden contraception became you know, a political issue. Who would have ever seen that? I wouldn't have guessed that would be a big political issue. Um, and then you have the social justice Catholics that tend to emphasize more issues of poverty, helping the poor, those kinds of things. I saw those divisions more prominently on display this time around than I have in recent elections. Very, very strong. You had the um, Paul Ryan Catholics who, who tend to approach especially the economic things a certain way. And then you had the Joe Biden Catholics who looked at economics and abortion differently. Um, what I found really interesting this time around was uh, the involvement of outside Catholic players in the process. And by that, I'm calling the bishops, although they did not endorse anybody. The U.S. Catholic bishops said we don't. But they really put a big public relations um, campaign out there on religious liberty. And again, this notion of the contraception mandate. The Obama administration um, under the health care law saying that employers must provide contraceptive services free of charge to employees, and that includes institutions like hospitals and schools. And as you know, that turned out to be a big, big political issue. And you had a lot of bishops talking about the war against religion and the Obama administration having a war against religious liberty. Um, you had certain bishops telling their flock, or at least strongly suggesting that if they voted for candidates who supported things like abortion and the contraception mandate, that perhaps their salvation could be at risk. I mean, you had really strong language from, from the bishops on one side. You also had this, this effort, maybe many of you saw it, the nuns on the bus. You had sisters, Catholic sisters, getting on a bus, going across the country, talking about budget issues and really highlighting their concern that the budget as proposed by their fellow Catholic, Paul Ryan, had cuts to social services that would hurt the poor. 
And so they were really out there. You even had a sister, uh, Sister Simone Campbell, speaking at the floor of the Democratic National Convention. Believe me, that has not happened since I've been covering politics, that a nun was out there on the convention floor. So you had these outside players, really vocal, um, sort of trying to influence the Catholic vote. I thought that was um, something different this time around. And the last thing I'll highlight is the, the um, increasing prominence of a group that EJ mentioned, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. I had the N-U-N-S and the N-O-N-E-S this time around. But they're religiously unaffiliated. They now make up about uh, one, in, one out of five Americans describes themselves as religiously unaffiliated. Now that includes atheists, agnostics, but the biggest share of them are people who say, I'm just nothing in particular. And those people are disproportionately democratic by far. And so this time around, when you look at the religious breakdown of the, co the coalitions, President Obama, when you look at the faith group breakdown, his largest share of religious categories was those who have no religious affiliation. So that was something really interesting. And those people, by the way, did not vote. They make up about 20% of the adult population, but they only made up about 12% of the electorate this time around. So that was still enough to really have a big influence, and that will only grow in the future. And that also proved that something people call the God gap. You may have heard that expression. A lot of political experts have talked about the God gap. The more often you attend religious services, the more likely you are to vote Republican. Now, African Americans are a big exception to that, but that God gap persisted, and if anything, it grew during this election. We've had a lot of talk about evangelicals. Uh, we actually have one here, and we have one of the smartest ones in the country. Uh, Michael Cromartie is the vice president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington. He runs a program called uh, evangelicals in public life. He has written the book, literally the book, on religion and politics in America, and he spends his life trying to get evangelicals involved and make a positive contribution to public life. So everybody else talking about evangelicals, what do you think happened? Let's hear from a live, real one. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, thank you, John. And it's great to be here with John and EJ and Kim, three colleagues I have the greatest respect for, so delighted to be here. I. Uh, I want to underline the importance of our topic, and it's a, a dated story, but uh, it may well be true. I heard that two senators were having lunch in the Senate dining room in 2008, one a Republican, one a Democrat, and the Republican lit into the Democrat and said, you know, the problem with you Democrats is you don't, you don't understand religion. You don't know any religious people. You don't know anything about religious doctrine. Well, I'll, I'll bet you $20 right now that you can't even recite the Lord's Prayer. Democrat looked at him and said, oh, you're on. And so the Democrat said, now I lay me down to sleep. And the Republican reached in his pocket and pulled out $20 and said, I didn't think you could do it. <laughs> so there's a lot of room for education on all sides. <laughs> Hence the importance of this gathering. Now, soon after the re-election of President Bush in 2004, a host of commentators seized on various polls suggesting that moral value voters had helped President Bush defeat Senator John Kerry. And soon after, there were numerous books and essays by very smart writers and scholars warning that America was on the verge of becoming a theocracy. Books by Kevin Phillips, James Rudin, Michelle Goldberg, Randall Balmer all became bestsellers as they argued that the fear of a theocracy had become the defining panic of the Bush era. And even in the pages of the New York Times Magazine, Gary Wills all but announced the end of the Enlightenment and the arrival of jihad in America. Many of their avid readers began plotting their escape to Canada. Well, so much for those predictions. In my brief comments, I'd like to suggest that this election was also about moral values and moral value voters, and that it was moral value voters who helped secure President Obama's re-election. But it was the moral value voters of the progressive left that helped carry the day for the president. President Obama's first term in his administration showed a surprising aggression against the rights of religious institutions and the issue of religious liberty. I will remind you that his Justice Department in the Hosanna Tabor case argued against the existence of any ministerial exception 
to the employment rules. And this case went all the way to the Supreme Court. When the, the case went to the court, the court voted, and it voted 9-0 to zero against the President's Justice Department. They ruled unanimously against the case. And last January, the White House set out to pick a fight with the Catholic Church over contraception. An HHS directive ordered all insurance plans to cover contraception, morning after pills and sterilizations with no exceptions for religious conscience. At the time, at the time, this looked like an act of political suicide. Not only was it an affront to the free exercise of religion, but it was picking an unnecessary fight with a religious institution that has the largest group of swing voters in the country. At the time, many thoughtful commentators, in fact, including even EJ's colleague, Bill Gostin, commentators, conservative and liberal commentators, thought this was an act of pure political folly. But as events have shown, apparently it was not. But it does represent an unprecedented and unnecessary political power grab and a very clear violation of religious freedom. Moreover, the president and his party ran a stridently, stridently pro-abortion re-election campaign. At the convention, freedom of choice was celebrated. No more Bill Clinton's adage of abortion being safe, legal, and rare. No, the president and his administration and his party were all in. His core moral belief about abortion seems to be simply this. A woman should always be able to get one, whether early term or late term. So in conclusion, just below, I want to suggest, just below all the discussions and debates about how to fix the economy, this was a values election that was as strident as any of the culture wars of the past. It is not true that it it has only been Republicans who were peddling a value, moral values agenda. It is simply that in the past, they were the ones who were succeeding at it. This year, they lost that debate and they lost that war. Thank you. Well, we've had three diverse perspectives and I think a good start. Uh, we had a plan for, you know, very elaborate. I was gonna play another tape of uh, the two candidates. I think let's focus on uh, uh, one question from me and then questions uh, to the audience about the future. Let me pick up on Michael's point. There was a certain irony in that it looked from a distance at least like the Republican campaign was its economy stupid and the Democratic campaign was the culture war campaign. Uh, uh, access to abortion, contraception, gay marriage. And what does that mean for the future? I was struck by two things, two people. Van Jones, who was nobody's idea of Ralph Reed, late at night on election night said that he was worried that as a Christian believer, whether he would really have a home in the future of the Democratic Party. He said, do I have to be in the closet as a Christian? And then John McCain, uh, looking at the wreckage, said, enough of this. Uh, we are who we are, but let's not talk about abortion and let's certainly not do anything about abortion. What is the future of religious roles, witness, persuasion in the two parties when one coalition seems to be increasingly secular and the other coalition seems to be saying uh, religious voters are part of the problem instead of the solution? And why don't we start with Kim and then go to Michael and then AJ and then I'm asking you to think about your questions and to line up behind those microphones. Well, I do think uh, this election sets up uh, some interesting dynamics moving forward. Uh, certainly the role of the religious right in the Republican Party is one of those, as I suggested earlier, they mobilized and it wasn't enough. So what is the Republican Party going to do? Are they going to then say, well, maybe we won't be so hardcore on issues like abortion and gay marriage? Well, they can't afford to alienate those voters. They need those voters. And in terms of those voters, uh, for many of them, issues like abortion and gay marriage, which, by the way, gay marriage is going to be huge in the, in the coming weeks and months, that issue is, is not over. Um, a lot of these religious voters, where they're talking about conservative Catholics and evangelicals both, 
this is a religious position for them. I mean, it's something that is part of something really deeply held. And so it's not just a political expediency issue. And so that sets up a, a more intense debate. The Supreme Court is going to announce, maybe even uh, what's today, Tuesday, maybe this week, maybe next week, whether or not they're going to hear um, arguments about whether gay marriage would, uh, that marriage, the definition of marriage being between a man and a woman only, will still be the official law of the land. And so that's going to set up big conflict. So those, those kind of culture war issues are still out there. I think for the Democratic Party, an interesting question is how indeed to manage their coalition. Do they want to be seen as this secular body? I think you had a certain, a, a unique set of circumstances with Barack Obama's relationship in the African American community who are highly religious. What, what didn't happen, people thought that when Barack Obama came out in support of gay marriage, that that would really alienate some of those African-American Protestants who tend to be very much against gay marriage. They did not vote on that issue, but many of them are not still converted on that issue. They still hold opposition. If another Democratic candidate comes along who's not Barack Obama, is that candidate going to have that kind of support, strong support from those highly religious voters? So I, I think those are all questions the Democratic Party has to figure out how to maintain support from the progressive left, religious left, as well as African-American voters, while still really trying to ramp up those religiously unaffiliated. How do you manage that? The Republican Party has to think about how do we reach out to Latino Catholics, Latino evangelicals. Many of the uh, Hispanic leaders I spoke with in the religious community said, I actually agree with a lot of the social positions of the Republican Party, but I don't like their rhetoric, and um, certainly on economic issues. So how is the Republican Party going to reach out? How can they do that um, without making some major changes? Michael, are, are we going to have two effectively pro-choice parties? Well, I, I think not. I hope not. Um, I mean, it's, Republicans are not going to win favor by becoming the Democratic Party. And so I think that, that, but that debate is intense, as you know, in the Republican Party. Um, I, I would I want to add, though, uh, John, that the, uh, uh, the very important scholar here at Harvard, Nathan Glazer, said uh, over 20 years ago that the uh, rise of the Christian right was what he called a defensive offensive. Uh, it was a defensive offensive in response to what he felt was an imposition of liberal elite values on their communities of faith. Now, I would like to suggest uh, and this, uh, by extension, my own thesis about that now, which is that the rise of the nuns, the unaffiliated, is in reaction to the overreach and the rigidity of the Christian right. And legitimate uh, concerns about the, uh, the uh, overall rhetoric of the Christian right, of the imprudent rhetoric. I mean, if, if one thing the Republicans need to do, they need to learn how to express those moral concerns in a public language that is, is far more prudent than has been exhibited in the last uh, election. EJ? Well, for, I, there are several things at the same time I want to say. One is I want to reassure my friend Mike, and he is my friend. We've worked together for a long time on a variety of things. Um, I think we still have a lot of religious liberty in America. I don't think the Obama administration shut down religious liberty, and I think one of the reasons that campaign didn't work is because the rhetoric was so overheated. As you know, I'm someone who was critical of the original HHS rule on contraception. I thought you needed some accommodation for religious institutions. I wrote about that. Obama made a compromise. I still think there's going to be, uh, there's a very strong possibility for a compromise on that question. Um, that's quite different from being aggressively anti-religious. Um, the second thing is that the Democrats are not a secular coalition. The thing about the Democrats, the challenge for the Democrats, is that they include within their coalition the most and the least religious people in the United States. Because if you look at all the survey work on African Americans, uh, whether it comes to their beliefs about God, relationships to God, regular uh, church attendance and the like, um, they are at least as religious, in quotes, as uh, white evangelicals, and by some measures even more so. I don't mean that as a value judgment, just by the social science measures. At the same time, uh, you have the most secular people in the, co in the country, and I think that's a real challenge for the Democratic Party. In one sense, 
it's, it's great virtue, you know, that old line, I don't belong to an organized political party, I'm a Democrat. Um, and it's, it's one of its great virtues, but I think it's a real challenge. Now, I agree with Michael, though I put it in somewhat different language, that this may be the first presidential campaign I have seen uh, in which the Democrats used a pro-choice position on abortion uh, in the kind of aggressive way that President Obama did. But I think that one of the reasons uh, that, was that, that it worked um, is uh, because of some of the extreme rhetoric uh, on, on the conservative side. And I know many, many conservatives were as appalled as, about what was said uh, by the Republican candidates in Indiana and in Missouri as uh, liberals were. But nonetheless, I think for a lot of women in particular, um, who might not have normally voted on the abortion question, this created a kind of power uh, to uh, that issue. Um, but the last thing I want to say is to go back to where, uh, where I was, because, uh, where I sort of ended earlier, which is on this whole question that, um, you know, Mike sort of talked about how it was um, the Democrats who talked about culture and the Republicans who talked about economics. But economics was central to the Obama campaign. But it wasn't a defense of 7.9% unemployment, obviously. Uh, it was, although he had to make arguments that he had made things better than they were when he came into office. Um, but it really was uh, about a view of how a just economy is created, whether you need a more regulated form of capitalism. And I was really glad Kim raised the nuns on the bus because I think what was really striking in this election is that in past elections, the Catholic Church's public position was largely uh, represented by the extensive coverage given to uh, a certain number of the most conservative Catholic bishops who tend to go out front, often got um, you know, their interviews on the front page of the New York Times, and this appeared to be the Catholic position. I think nuns on the bus um, ended up speaking, they ended up speaking for a very significant part of the uh, Catholic vote in their emphasis uh, on social justice. And just one other polling statistic, some uh, friends and I who have been doing these surveys, we asked Catholics uh, the question, um, you know, do you think the Catholic Church should talk more about poverty and social justice, even if that means talking less about abortion uh, and the right to life, or should they talk more about abortion and the right to life, even if that means talking less about social justice? By two to one, Catholics said social justice, not over abortion. Even weekly church attending Catholics said social justice, sort of 51 to 36 percent, if I remember the numbers right. So that there is, I think, a debate within the religious community itself about where the priorities should be. And obviously, uh, uh, John might object that his view is you need to talk about both of those things and you need to connect them, and I understand that. But I think that there is, um, you know, in, I think part of the, the, the debate inside the Catholic Church that Kim talked about um, is between Catholics who don't want the church to abandon its position on abortion, but believe abortion, uh, that, that the abortion issue has driven out a conversation uh, about social justice. The last quick point, gay marriage is a completely different issue than abortion, and I think there is no long-term future in opposition uh, to gay marriage. This is purely, almost purely, a generational issue, uh, and that uh, young uh, Americans, including uh, beginning to be younger evangelicals, younger Catholics, younger religious people, um, are simply much more sympathetic to it than older Americans. And I think that issue is going to play out quite differently. I think abortion we will still be arguing about for a very long time. Next time we do this, <clears throat> I want to be a panelist, not a moderator, because I have lots I was of trying to represent to some of your things. views, John. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, John, I, I think I... Let, let Mike represent well, just, just a moment, because I want to get to questions. One... Uh, a key question, I think, for all of us is, does your faith shape your politics, yes. or is it the other way around? EJ's either-or question, if you begin with faith, it's a both-and question. One of the things we learned in our study group is that when you talk about religion and politics, you don't just talk about abortion and same-sex marriage. And we have talked mostly about abortion and same-sex marriage. If, if you listen to the debate, 
the 47%, the president, all that, you would think that Matthew 25 is not whatsoever you do for the least of these, it's whatsoever you do for the forgotten middle class, you do unto me. One of our questions is, as the country, <clears throat> as the politicians focus on how to treat the taxes of the people at the top, I hope the religious community will talk about how we lift up the people at the bottom. Let's go to questions. Well, can I just say one quick thing, because this is something and then Mike and I might agree on, actually. One of the things in this whole discussion that really bothers me a lot is, and this is a sin committed all across the political and religious spectrum, um, is that, in fact, views that are often defended in religious terms really don't come from religion at all. It's the great C.S. Lewis line, uh, they don't look to scripture for guidance in how to think about political questions. They ransack scripture for support for their own political party. Uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion and that we aren't as always as honest with ourselves. And again, I, I include myself as a sinner here as much as anyone else. We're not always as honest about, with ourselves about which is prior. Uh, and that we tend to try to rationalize one with the other Sometimes it's easy, sometimes uh, it's really forced. And I just think it's, it's something that's bothered me more and more as we have talked more about this. We, we talk about religion and politics, but we're really talking about politics. <laughs> well, in our church, we have a place to go to confess that sin. Yeah. Uh, Michael. I, I just have a comment or reply to EJ in, in a form of a question. E.J., okay, it's religious liberty is still very much a part. The First Amendment still exists. But are you not concerned about the power grab of the Hosanna Tabor case? Are you, uh, to, to wipe out a ministerial exemption? Are you not concerned about the, the attempt of the, the state to define HHH mandates? It, it's, what bothers the people that I know that are concerned, the lawyers that I know, is they see it as a, a power grab. It, it is an attempt to define religion for religious believers and for their institutions, and to tell them which one is a, a, a religious school and which one's not a religious school. That's where that's gonna go on the campuses. The okay. Very short response. The, I, I actually would not have filed the brief they filed in Hosanna Tabor, so that I don't, didn't agree with how far they Thank went you. in Thank you, I just wanted to get that on the record. Um, but I don't think, I think the notion about government never defining religion, the government has to do that through the IRS all the time. In other words, it's, I think it's a red herring to say, uh, we can argue about how and how, how, how it should do that, what rules it has to make, but it has to make decisions about what is religion in, in many cases and has done so for a very long time. And so to say suddenly it's just Barack Obama raging war on religion, I just don't think that's true. Yeah. Wrong definition, but uh, well, let's go. And uh, the I rules said. are uh, a short question and it ought to end with a question mark. So. Okay. Hi, I'm Tom Snyder. I'm a senior at the college in actually a Kennedy's old house, Winthrop. Um, I spoke with Hans Kung about a year ago, and he really lamented the, I guess, the structure of the church now, how it emphasizes abortion over social justice issues. Do you think that as the bishops age, there will be a shift back towards an emphasis on social justice, or do you see this to continue being a sort of war within the Catholic church that exists for the next, I guess, conceivable future? Boy, do I want John Carr to answer that question. Who knows ahead, more EJ. about Catholic bishops than anyone in this room? Um, the, I think the election was a surprise to many of the most conservative bishops. I think they expected Mitt Romney to win. And my understanding is that there is a real um, you know, soul-searching going on in the church about well, what this means. I think many of the most conservative bishops will continue to take the positions they take and take this as a sign that they just need to fight harder for that set of positions. Um, I thought it was significant that there was an economic document that was at a bishop's meeting that went to the floor and failed to get the two-thirds majority uh, it needed. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I took that, but much of the, op and many of the public opponents of that uh, letter uh, felt that it wasn't progressive enough, it didn't talk enough about unions and poverty and some other issues in his strong enough terms. Uh, so I think there's gonna be a real argument among the bishops, but I also think there is, as Kim suggested, a real argument going on among the faithful. And while we are a hierarchical church, that's the structure of the church, um, I think that you're going to, 
And I think one of the interesting people to watch is Cardinal Dolan, because I, I have a, from everything I understand is he's trying to think through, it's not so much about changing formal positions, but it is about how the church's message is presented uh, and having a stronger voice. Dolan and the Bishop of um, Brooklyn put out a letter on poverty in September before the election. Uh, cynics said they had a sense of where the election was going when they did that. I like to believe that's not the case. Uh, you know, and so I, I, I think this debate will continue. I think EJ, by focusing on Cardinal Dolan, really touches the core of the issue. Cardinal Dolan took pressure, heat, criticism from both right and left. He uh, prayed with both parties. He stood with both candidates at the Al Smith dinner. And he stood up for what he called the uns, the unborn and the undocumented, the unemployed and uh, the people who lacked uh, a future, didn't have uh, the resources they need. He has, he's not going to compromise on fundamentals, but he believes you engage and persuade. You don't sit back and c condemn and punish. So I think Dole, Cardinal Dolan is the leader of the bishops. And it's best to watch, and this is where my quarrel on journalism, who makes the front page of the New York Times sometimes is the choice of the Times. Let's go up here. Hi, um, my name is John. I'm a sophomore at the college. Um, we talked a little bit, well, we, we, we talked mostly exclusively about American politics, and I wanted to bring in an international angle. Um, Egypt is rewriting its constitution, and there's a big debate between uh, sort of like the more conservative Islamists and, and the less conservatives and uh, the seculars in the country. And I was going to ask, um, if you think religion should play a role in politics, where would you draw the line for countries like Egypt? How should they deal with um, you know, their issues? Oh, well, Mike, you should take that. You know, <laughs> since you care about religious liberty, I'm I, 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 indeed, indeed I do. I would want to... Uh, uh, rewrite the entire Egyptian constitution and then implement the uh, First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Speak up a little bit, Mike. Did it not come in? I'd want to, I'd, I'd want to, uh, okay, I want to impose our constitution on them. How about that for a controversial comment? Now, I, what I mean to say is that uh, you, you've, all, you've surely done panels here, I'm sure, about the whole ongoing debate about religious liberty and religious freedom within the world of Islam itself. And that's an ongoing debate within that community. Uh, it, it needs to grow and prosper. Just, my friend Bill Galston makes the point that whom um, Mike referenced earlier that um, there are many different ways to preserve religious liberty and ours is only one of them. I happen to like our way of doing it. Um, and uh, and I, I actually think um, keeping religion independent of the state is good for religion. It's, it's, most people talk about it the other way around. Uh, it's true both ways. However, you know, if you look at, there are many European countries where you, by every definition, there is religious liberty, who actually have formal constitutions with, um, you know, either a preference for church. I mean, there are still, uh, you know, uh, European democracies with state churches, technically. I mean, it, you know, Britain among them. Um, and so I think when we look at um, Islamic countries struggling with these questions, we tend to think that anything that falls short of our First Amendment guarantees that you won't have religious liberty. I just don't think that has to be true. Having said that, I think within Islam, there are sort of strongly competing forces, uh, just as there have been historically within our church. I mean, the Catholic Church fundamentally changed on these questions uh, in Vatican II. Uh, and, um, I think, and I think just as American Catholics played a role in that transformation of Catholic doctrine, uh, perhaps American Muslims will play some role in this argument in the world. Kim, do you when, want to add? Well, just briefly, one of the things I was surprised um, didn't get more attention in our election is uh, how we relate to some of these countries and what our role is in the U.S. in terms of advocating for some of these values on an international stage. And you saw a little bit with the, the anti-Muslim video that, that was made here in America and went and prompted all of these uh, protests around the country, and it really raised interesting questions about where the lines are between free speech and insulting people's religion. Those are questions that are being argued in the international community, and the extent to which 
the United States is standing up for them is, is you know, that's an issue that will be interesting to watch. Great. Over here. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Landon Mascarenas. I'm over at the Education School, and I have a question. You're actually, at the which school? At the Education School, okay. and uh, just down, just down the road. And uh, my question actually is, I really appreciate all commentators uh, talking about the rise of the nuns, like the non-religious, being like a really important, uh, growing social force. And Mike, I really appreciate your comment about how the increased rhetoric on the religious right has actually probably precipitated some of this growth. And I guess my question is, you know, will the Republican Party be able to break the cycle of that rhetoric? given the recognition of this growing group of people um, emerging in our country? Like, will, will we actually be able to see an increased recognition that the increased rhetoric actually has led to the growth of this group, given it's such a, a potent dem demographic force moving up? I yes, think what, that is, sorry. Well, uh, who was it directed to? Uh, to, to? To Kim and to you. Jump in. I'm sorry. Go, Kim. Go, Kim. Kim, you leave. Well, I think that is a big question for the Republican Party. How do they balance all of those? Because as I said, they really need that, that strong support from religious conservatives in order to win, but they, they need more than that to win. So that's their big challenge. One interesting thing um, about the nuns, it's a mistake to assume that they're all completely secular. Um, in fact, the, the vast majority of them are not atheists or agnostics, but are just nothing in particular. My program did a survey actually this fall with the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, taking a look at the nuns and asking them, questions about their beliefs, and in fact, um, a majority of them actually do believe in God. They do believe in, or some kind of higher power. Many of them pray, many of them um, see a positive role for religion in the public square. So it's not like they just don't want any religion whatsoever. It's a more <coughs> nuanced view, and I think that's where the Republicans, and the Democrats as well, are gonna have to go, a more nuanced uh, rhetoric that incorporates a little bit of both ends. John, I just want to say that I, I'm sure Democrats do it, I know Republicans do it. Every two years when there's an election, they head off for a retreat and they go for like three days to some resort outside of Washington and they talk about how to pass a bill and how to get along with your colleagues. It is urgent that at a Republican retreat that they have some serious moral theologian talk to them about how to talk about deeply complex ethical questions in a way that is not so absolutist, that takes into the fact that the world is broken and fallen and people have to make tragic choices. And when you're in front of the public, in front of cameras, you don't make these outrageous statements without first prefacing it by saying, these are tragic, tragic choices that we sometimes have to make. I end up on this side. But instead, we've got these people going out making these incredibly uh, 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 statements that are so unwise, so imprudent, and so uh, the retreat needs to be uh, filled with moral theologians and pastors who can teach them how to talk in public. I it was really be, struck by Kim's. Oh, well, no, it will be because this is going to go on YouTube, and this will go out to all the masses, and the word will get to so, Washington. So they'll listen to you. I, I was really struck by Kim's point that the nuns uh, are spiritual, but they don't go to church. They're political, but they don't vote. Uh, there right. might be something going on here more than conviction. There might be a certain inertia uh, working here, oh, right here. Um, hi, my name is Megan. I'm a freshman here at the college and a member of the JFK Forum Committee. Um, you spoke a lot about the Catholic vote and the influence of church hierarchy on uh, the Catholic voting population. And, but to me, there seems to be a big disconnect, especially with social issues, um, between the church and um, its congregation. Uh, with same-sex marriage, um, the Catholic Church this cycle was the largest funder of anti-same-sex marriage campaigns and recently appointed a bishop in San Francisco who was one of the largest supporters of Prop 8. And so my question is, um, do you, do you um, think it's detrimental for the church to continue to not acknowledge the shifting societal attitudes of its congregation? And do you foresee these shifting um, shifting views able to influence the church's position, or more so that the church will just um, adopt a view of the separation between religion and civil rights? Boy, I really want you to answer that one, John. I mean, you know. I, I'd like to give an answer, but I want to see what you say. Uh, let's be clear. The, the position of the Catholic Church on gay marriage is the position of Barack Obama a year ago. 
this is not a trendy institution. I, I would not look for the Catholic Church to lead the charge <laughs> on gay marriage. And frankly, I want some institutions in society to stand up and ask hard questions. The role of the state, the role of religion in marriage, I think is going to take a lot more thinking than we got. My own view is that attitudes are changing dramatically on same-sex marriage because people know people in their families, in their communities, who are gay and, in fact, want to have a relationship. I also think attitudes on abortion, for example, are changing because of what technology is doing. We, we had the experience in our family where our, our son and daughter-in-law are having a baby, and we got a, on email a picture of this child. Uh, she has a face, she has hands, she has feet. Uh, we know she's a girl. She has a name, Anna. She has a bedroom now. Now she has all this pink stuff. She has everything but legal protection because uh, under the law of the land, uh, she can't uh, be protected. So I think one of the things we're learning from the same-sex marriage debate and the abortion debate is when people see themselves, people affected, whether it's in a sonogram or in their own families, it affects how they feel about this. I, I would like the church's position to be, um, I mean, I support same-sex marriage, and I always say I support it. I think the best argument for it is the conservative argument, which is if you believe in fidelity and commitment and want society to encourage it, why in the world would you deny gays or lesbians the opportunity to commit themselves to a life of faithfulness? Uh, and, but I do think that when you hear religious people talk about it, one of their biggest fears is that if same-sex marriage is legalized, it will be imposed upon religious traditions that continue to believe it's wrong. And so, and I think it's quite legitimate uh, to say that no law about same-sex marriage, which is about the state, not about religion, uh, should put any burdens on religious institutions they continue to regard homosexuality as some kind of homosexual behavior as a sin. Uh, the referendum in Maryland had some pretty strong language uh, protecting religious liberty. The gay marriage law in New York had some strong language protecting the religious liberty rights of dissenting congregations. I think that is a legitimate, entirely legitimate demand uh, on the part of more conservative religious people. Um, and I have a hunch, it's going to take some time, I have a hunch that is where it's going to move. Just real quick, if I could just interject. Um, you know, the, the people in the pews have never followed what the Catholic hierarchy says from day one. So that's not like we're in its different, um, you know, unfortunately. <laughs> I know. Stunned. Here's a breaking news flash. Um, so that, that's just one thing. So that is a continual problem that the bishops and other church leaders need to look at. Why is that? Uh, number one. And number two, I just wanted to say that um, I think it's a mistake to assume that all young people are liberal and in some way going to change the, the culture of some of these yeah. institutions. When I was doing reporting this past year about the, the nuns and UNS um, and debates over, um, you know, the Catholic Church and whether the sisters are following church teaching enough, um, in my stories, the, the older women, the older sisters were much more liberal and the younger ones that I was interviewing were much more conservative. So it's a little more complex, I think, than sometimes we tend to look at it. Just one John F. Kennedy one-liner, and to the extent these things have gone on for a long time, uh, Kennedy once said, they, meaning the Republicans, have the bishops, we have the nuns. And he said that a long time ago. <laughs> as, uh, as was suggested, it's a little more complicated than yeah, Well, that. that's true. <laughs> Last it's question. It's always more complicated. Thank you very much. My name is Sam Ward. I'm a mid-career MPA here at the Kennedy School. Given the shifting religious affiliation of the electorate, could a well-qualified atheist ever win a presidential election in this country, or is the religious firewall just too tough? Oh. The surveys still show, despite these demographic changes, the majority, a significant majority of Americans still say it's important for them to have a president with strong religious beliefs. Now, if there were a candidate who was charismatic, little c, popular, uh, you know, I, I, potentially, but, but there's something 
in the American psyche, at least for the time being, that still hangs on to that. And that has been consistent, even though the numbers of N-O-N-E-S and others change, that has been a very consistent answer in the poll questions. I think it's very possible that we have elected a well-qualified <laughs> atheist, but we were never told <laughs> yeah, about it. And I actually think that is the question, yeah. is whether a publicly you know, professed, public, uh, somebody self-declares as, as atheist could win. My hunch is that won't happen soon, and it will happen eventually. Michael, any well, last comment no, on this or anything else? Oh my, well, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you get the last word, Mike. Uh, well, quickly to his, and then I do have a comment, actually. Uh, the, uh, what, what they say about the survey data is true. It's something like 76% of Americans say they want their president to be a person of faith, and they don't care what faith it is. That's what's interesting. It's sort of a civil religious commitment to, we just want them to uh, uh, worship something that transcends their self. Although I think a Muslim might challenge that point. But anyway. It might challenge well, it. Yeah. Quick, let me yeah. just say quickly, John, one thing, and we could do another seminar here next year, is this. The word social justice has been thrown out all night as if it has one definition. And there is a lot of good scholarship and work done saying that those social justice programs harm the poor. And we, we've never touched on that. I just wanted to be sure to underline it. There are some people who move to the right on some questions economically because they think the word social justice was used in a way. Uh, because if we run out of money, what, what, if we don't have any money, what, how are we going to pay for all this? Sounds stuff? like we've got the topic for our next religion and politics. Sounds like we've got the topic of the next three weeks in Washington. Yeah. But Richard Parker, I charge you with uh, putting together a session on social justice right here. Well, in this Professor stage. Parker, I'm a fan. <laughs> Actually, the last question really relates to uh, our study group in that we had a remarkable group of young people and not so young people, some of whom were deeply committed and deeply involved in their own faith, many of whom were not. But there was a sense that politics ought to be about more than ego or money or power, or for that matter, micro-targeting, which is, appears to be the new thing, that it ought to be about something fundamental, issues of life and death, issues of war and peace, issues of debt and deficits, issues of who gets ahead and who gets left behind. And for many Americans, eight out of 10, the place they go for those values, for that framework, is their faith. And the questions we face on deficits, on lifting up the poor, on climate change, on abortion, same-sex marriage, on religious freedom, they require more than polls and focus groups. They require people bringing their deepest convictions into public life. And so despite the risks, despite the dangers, uh, it was our conclusion, I think, that politics is in fact enriched when people bring their deepest convictions, for many of us, their faith, into public life. And frankly, faith does, does not engage in public life is not truly religious faith. So thank you very much. Thank you to our panelists. And thank you for coming. Thank you.